All right, hey everybody, welcome back to the Well Podcast. This is Dylan here, and um, I'm sitting across from Nolan Osborne. Uh, he's uh, uh, um, an editor in chief, I believe, or editor with the uh, Journal of Mountain Hunting. I'll let him do his introduction for what his business is, but uh, he's actually on here because uh, I we're, we're we're buddies here in in, in Vancouver, and uh, we share the the hunting community space here a little bit, and um, I I thought I'd kick off a series of podcasts where I'm just checking in with. Uh, the folks who are in my hunting community uh, that are doing interesting stuff and uh, we're midway through the hunting season here and I, and I kind of just wanted to have conversations around how the hunting season's going and uh, what uh, what my what my friends and, and colleagues have been up to and uh, so I'm excited here to have uh, Nolan Osborne on the podcast hey Nolan how you doing good thank you for having me cool. um I'm not the editor-in-chief but I'm the managing <laughs> editor it's yeah Whatever. I knew it was, I knew it was a big name. I knew it was like a really big name. So I was going for like the biggest name I could think of. But yeah. yes, I'm sure Yonke is probably he is. Yeah, cringing when he, if he hears this. But uh, yeah. yeah, so thanks for correcting me. I knew as soon as that came out of my mouth that I was uh, off track. But no, you do good. a lot of work with, yeah, what do you do with it? So what does that mean? You're the managing editor with the Journal of Mountain Hunting. Well, that means that um, it's, a, it's a pretty small operation. It's, uh, but really that means that any of the, um, any of the published content typically goes through me. So whether that's Instagram, podcasts, uh, or written articles, I, I do all of the kind of updating of our website and do I host our podcast quite a bit myself, um, as well as occasionally writing articles and editing articles. And yeah, that's, that's kind of that. And then three months of the year, I work as a hunting guide. Okay, that's what I'm excited about talking mm-hmm. about because uh, uh, this was a very unique year, uh, with uh, obviously the border closing to uh, to U.S. travel. All, all basically, yeah, U.S. travelers and and uh, and international travelers just was not feasible to come and hang out in a hunting camp um, for all things COVID, and mm-hmm. uh, no doubt that has had a tremendous impact on on the industry. Can you walk me through sort of what what kind of happened to the industry and, and a bit of a progression from early onset of sort of anticipating there might be some changes to a full closure of the border to how it impacted the uh, guide outfitting industry in, in BC? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's basically as soon as, as the COVID news kind of struck um, North America, and or at least when it hit BC, and, and we started to see changes in March, um, kind of early mid-March, I basically prepped myself for not having a guiding season at all. Um, and so I was... I guess maybe more, I don't know if the word would be realistic about it, but I just kind of tried to mentally prep for the worst. And, you know, if it's any better than that, then it's good. And otherwise I'm not, you know, I I just didn't want to get my hopes up and then become really disappointed. Um, So I think the opinions throughout the community varied and a lot of people, they were, you know, whether they thought it was realistic or not, they were really hoping that the border would stay open or open up in time. Um, and I can appreciate that based off the fact that that's how we make, you know, the bulk of our livelihood. Um, and for some people they're, you know, full-time guides, guiding six, seven, eight months a year. Um, so yeah, basically everyone waited, waited and waited and waited and waited. And then, you know, kind of eventually just realized that the border wasn't going to open and they started, uh, shifting gears and trying to book Canadian clients. So, so before we get into that, let's just provide some context for, you know, I mean, the, I think the, probably the important thing is to recognize that, I mean, what percentage of your clients would you say are, are U.S. citizens? I would say 99.9%. I think yeah. I've gotten six years, I've guided maybe a couple Canadians. Yeah. 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 So really, like, I mean, what what you guys do, you know, you offer, you know, what is probably the quintessential wilderness mountain hunting experience with your outfit. And, you know, it's basically sold to the highest bidder that wants to have that experience. Yep. Probably the, the probably the part of the reason why you don't have too many Canadians is that, you know, I can go have that experience, but I don't have to hire a guide because I'm fortunate enough to live in British Columbia mm-hmm. or be Canadian, and then so that really, when you cost out the, <laughs> the cost benefit of trying to puzzle out how you're going to do it yourself versus hiring somebody, but but for sure for for the U.S. citizens, it's the only way to go. The only way you can hunt a BC is to really hire a guide and and and. Uh, get the support and then obviously if you're going to do if you're going to do it you get a once in a lifetime opportunity and it's uh certainly probably worth it for, mm-hmm. for most of these folks hey 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I also think in general Canadians don't have the appetite to spend that kind of money on hunting. Um, you know, I think there's a variety of reasons for that, but it just seems to be the case that uh, Canadians aren't willing to spend as much money as Americans are to go hunting. Yeah, totally. And because maybe more even like I wonder if it's almost like a history of like, or it's more it's almost a cultural thing. Like it, it's something that that is part of the. Um, you know what? What Americans are, or Americans who are really into hunting that have can afford the opportunity. It's sort of it's more part of the culture there. Mm-hmm. Definitely, I'm not too sure. Like you know, even the most enthusiastic hunters and the most affluent hunters here in BC, I, I just I feel like they just gear up with more and more expensive toys, and you know, have you know, buy more land that they can just like yeah, grow their own whitetails and elk on or something. You know, there's other avenues to achieve. That mm-hmm. optimal hunting experience. If you're a affluent BC or Canadian hunter, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing. Oh yeah, that, but. yeah. I mean, you could buy a small Cessna for the price of a stone sheep hunt. Like <laughs> yes, you could. It's like, or two hundred or or four hundred acres in the piece and just grow like yeah. prime white tail food and just like have a couple stands, which is something I wanted to talk to you about. We're talking about a partnership with a couple of buddies of mine, but uh okay. down the road. Yeah. No, I'm just yeah, it was it was a thought that my buddy just sent me a note saying, Hey, why don't we buy some land just to you know, foster a hunting environment there and yeah. yeah. So kind of a fun thought. I never really thought about it, but uh we're pretty fortunate though here in BC. We just got so many wonderful places to hunt that it uh, totally know, hard hard to hard to imagine assigning yourself to to hunt in one part of BC. Definitely, uh, yeah. You know, even even just having a cabin in one part of BC is uh, feels like I'm detracting from the opportunities to hunt everywhere else in BC. It, yeah. yeah, yeah. We have a lot of options, but yeah, um, sure. kind of kind of circling back there. Um, so we started booking Canadians. We started booking Canadians in July, um, and our season starts August 1st. So I think, you know, in the case of my outfitter and a number of other outfitters, their mentality seemed to be more like, hey, we can keep cash flow uh, moving, and, you know, it gives us the opportunity to pay our guides, um, you know, an actual guiding wage. Because we have a wage, generally you have a wage split, right? So you'd have a non-guiding wage for preseason work, uh, if you're shoeing horses or trail cutting and all that kind of stuff. And then once you have clients come in, you have a guiding wage and they're usually, you know, be two to three times more your guiding wage would be than your, um, than your day rate for non-guiding work. So, um, yeah. So for, for, in the case of my outfitter, he basically was like, Hey, if I can, if I can get some cash flow and I can, you know, make enough money to pay my guys, then, uh, you know, I know they, it's a good chunk of money for them that they rely on every year and, uh, kind of keeps things going. And I don't think we made any, um, real profit to be honest. Like we were selling stone sheep hunts for less than half price. Yeah. Um, you know, they were going for 30,000 Canadian and normally they'd be right around 86 Canadian. So. Wow. $86,000. That's why I said you it. can buy a small Cessna. <laughs> Yeah, you can. I heard fifty thousand for a Cessna the other day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, wow. but yeah, um, yeah. So we, I mean, we did. We had kind of a truncated season. It was shorter. Uh, I think I was up there for just over uh, two months, and typically it would be a full ninety day season for me. So, cool. So, so did you guys manage to sell some Canadian hunts? Was that was, was yep. there a few hunters that came through? Yeah, yeah. It was pretty good, and it kind of varied per guide and. Um, you know, the outfitter that I work for gave guys the option, um, as well to do some hunting for themselves. Um, so I opted out of that and, and took another sheep hunter because, uh, I don't know, it's kind of hard to complain about COVID year and not making money if you're turning down money. So. Totally. And yeah, and it's, you know, it's also an opportunity to guide another sheep hunt, which, yeah, you know, who knows how long you can do this for. And it's still a pretty amazing job to be in those mountains and share that experience with, with someone i'm sure yeah totally yeah cool did you have success this year did you, did you yeah yeah so i ended up guiding four hunts um all in all it was a pretty good season i actually went into the season this year um in july i only had one hunter who's a good friend of mine from uh vancouver and uh and he was coming for moose and that was it the rest of the season I was basically going to be doing camp improvements and trail cutting and just scouting some country that I hadn't had time to time to check out before. So that was also pretty, would have been pretty exciting, but, um, I ended up guiding four hunts, uh, 20 day stone sheep hunt in late August, early September, 
and then the 10 day mountain goat hunt, 10 day moose hunt. And then, uh, I picked up another stone sheep right at the end. And that was a seven day. Um, and it was a bring back actually. It was a guy who didn't have the opportunity, didn't even see a ram on the first hunt for 20 days. Wasn't my hunter. It was a different guy's hunter. <laughs> I mean, my, my first hunter didn't get one either, but yeah, we had, we had really, August was the worst weather, um, the worst weather I've, I think I've ever hunted in. And I mean, I've, uh, I haven't hunted in all the weather, but I've done a few, maybe four or five goat hunts in Terrace in February. So. Yeah. I remember I got a couple of messages from you. It's a play by play of the weather inside your tent from the inreach. <laughs> and, uh, I was yeah. feeling kind of fortunate cause we had just got off our little expedition up, up, uh, on the other side of the hill there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, yeah, we got out of there just in time before the, it sounds like the weather just collapsed on a lot of hunts. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I start that hunt started for me the August 16th. Um, so the first typical hunt block for us, we would have two hunt blocks in August, both two weeks long. Uh, the first hunt block, I built a corral, which was interesting. Uh, it was fun. We, you know what, it was, it was a good time. And it's kind of like, Hey, I'm in the mountains. I'm getting paid. I don't really care what I'm doing. But, uh, but yeah, the, in August there, the 16th to to September 4th, I think was the first hunt and, um, yeah, just really adverse conditions and, um, got on, got on some legal, two legal rams and, uh, but my hunter had some physical difficulties and sheep hunting isn't easy. So. And, and the weather doesn't help when no. it goes to hell. So. so I'm curious. So like. I, I, you know, when this, uh, obviously when, you know, when we started putting it together this year as resident hunters in the, the hunting community, we're like, Hey, there's going to be no like resident hunt or sorry, there's gonna be no guided hunters in the field. Mm-hmm. Like this is going to be a bonanza for, uh, for, um, you know, resident hunters to get out there and have opportunities to, to see more rams or maybe potentially harvest more rams. Um, I'm kind of curious. I, like, have you heard any scuttlebutt on 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 resident hunters' success rates this year because of the absence of uh, of guided hunting in the mountains? Not really, and and truthfully, I I heard that quite a bit myself as well. Um, I think I personally think that was wishful thinking. Um, I don't think that. Yeah, I just I don't think that res that non residents um, harvest harvest enough rams for the most part to really make a huge. Uh, impact in what you're seeing i mean more i guess more pressure pushing sheep around that can change things for sure um and yeah but truthfully i think i mean i think non-resident i was listening to your podcast actually on my drive up north with uh bridger mike bridger and i think he said he said resident harvest success in in 7b is basically uh nine and a half percent is the average um and you know, we, I would say outfitter success is probably somewhere, depending on the outfit, between 75% and, and 95% um, success rate. So I, yeah, I just, I don't think it's um, a matter of too much hunters out there. I think it's just, you know, guides have, uh, guides have the upper hand because they know the areas better. You have knowledge that's passed down every single year, um, you know, from 40 years ago and you work with guides who've been there for 30 years and they know, Hey, when this weather happens, go look there for sheep or, yeah. And you can kind of lean on that. And then the other thing too is, um, and I think this is really one of the biggest factors is, you know, you have basically, uh, a really good annual salary sitting on your head for a two week hunt. Right. So you have a guy just paid, you know, 55, 58,000 us for you to make good on that. And that's your job. And so if you're, you know, if the weather's bad or if your legs hurt or kind of all, all of the things, you know, that on a hunt, you can always say, Hey, you can, there's easy, it's easy to convince yourself not to go do this or not to keep pushing. Um, whereas when you're guiding, it's kind of, you know, the sayings, you're only as good as your last hunt. So, um, Hmm. you just, you can't, you can't ever say no, you can't quit. You just have to keep going and going and going and going because you have that pressure of, you know, basically someone, someone just paid your wage for a year. And you have to, so. you have to say like, you have to let them walk away from it and say, Hey, that was worth it. Yeah. So. Oh, that, that's an, I, I, you know, yeah, I guided, uh, I guided like white tail doe hunts one year. I did this eat wild supported hunt concept yeah. where I wanted to teach people how to hunt. And then with the opportunity of potentially shooting a white tail doe and we were in good white tail country. And I, I thought this was a good idea to help build those foundational skills. And, mm-hmm. 
And man, did I ever feel the pressure of like trying to put together a doe hunt, you know? And this is like, these guys are paying, these guys are like, they're paying $2,000 to hang out with me for a week. And like, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. It was like, it was like, it was the hardest I've ever worked. I think I, I think I worked it out. I was making about six bucks an hour by the time I was oh, all yeah. said and done. Yeah. And like it was just, and, and like, I felt the pressure there. Like, and that's like, and like, you know, <laughs> a $55,000 US pressure to like make it happen. Yeah. yeah. The, the stress sure. is real when you're uh, when you're staring at a ram trying to get age on it, and the wind's shaking your spotter, and the client's sitting there being like, "Hey, well, what is he?" I'm like, "I know I've been sitting on it for two hours, but just give me more time, guy." But <laughs> wow. nah, it's all good. That's incredible. I, yeah, it's a, you can do a whole podcast about that pressure. It's just it's, that would be intense. Mm-hmm. It can and, be, yeah, for yeah, sure, for sure. But yeah, I know that um, you know I. I I I mean I the the uh, the conversations I had with with resident sheep hunters uh, in my community you know that you know it, there was a few rams taken but it didn't feel like there was you know an abundance of rams taken this year mm-hmm. and, you know a number of people had very similar experiences to previous years where they were in you know areas where they saw lots of what you know were immature rams and mm-hmm. you know, really didn't see any mature rams and and I I kind of thought that this would be the year where there'd be you know, a few more eight-year-olds or what would appear to be legal rounds. But, uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I, it just, it seemed to be kind of consistent with with previous years. And, yeah. and similarly, like our sheep hunt was probably more of an adventure than a, than a, than a really, like we didn't really, we got, we didn't get as many days up in sheep country as we'd hoped. Um, right. Because of the adventure aspects of, of, of raft in the river and such. But. Uh, it sounds pretty but, awesome. Oh, so fun, man. I mean, you're yeah. like, you know, there's, I think it's a Jack O'Connor quote or something about your sheep hunt for the country. You know, you sheep hunt for the views. So yeah. that's totally. Yeah. And like, yeah, and it was cool to walk through some terrain. And, and we did actually like get the benefit of being able to hunt some areas that would have like, you probably wouldn't have hunted if it was a guiding season because there would have been, gu- there would have been resident hunters getting guided out of that area. Mm-hmm. So we did get to like see some spectacular country that's, that is, you know, you know what is considered some of the classic um, stone sheep country. Yeah, and we had, you know, we had first crack at it, and that's awesome. Look at look at it, and, and just so pleasant to. And even if you're not even looking for sheep, like you know, it's not just sheep that get disturbed. It's the goats, it's the it's mm-hmm. the moose, it's the caribou. All those critters get disturbed when there's people in the valley. So for sure, to be the first to push through uh, and, and get you know first first look at everything before it kind of breaks up for the fact that it's hunting season is still a privilege, right? Oh, totally. Totally. I actually think um, there's, I guess, two things this year or three things I noticed this year. One, uh, I actually noticed less mature rams. Um, Now, it wasn't that they weren't there. I think it was just the weather that we were having. Uh, Basically, where I was hunting, most of the rams were down in willows and timber. And you could see like you'd get up high in the alpine looking down into these willow bowls, kind of right on the edge of the alpine, just on the edge of the tree line. And um, you'd see sheep trails going through the willows that were torn up like jet black, dark earth. They'd been used so much. They looked like a horse trail, uh, okay. which which is not normal at all. Like usually, you know, I know that sheep spend time in the timber. Most guides know that, um, you know, they spend a lot more time in the timber than, than most people give them credit for. But um, yeah, this year, I mean, there was, there was numerous occasions where I would just catch like the top curl of a ram's horns going through willows that were as like taller than it. And you can't get okay. age on it and you don't know, you know, you know, it just saw you cause it's, it just walked off into the thick stuff, but you can't tell what it is. You can't, you don't even know what you're looking at. So, um, that was an interesting observation and certainly from so, a lot So of... let me just, so now this is a learning opportunity for me. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested. So, so you're, so you're saying that with the foul weather that we experienced that that pushes the, the sheep down into the timber, into the willow country and they're, mm-hmm. they're Okay. If you're in willow country, if you're in country that's primarily just rocks and stuff, um, they don't have as much escape terrain. But if you're, uh, you know, there's a lot of great classic stone sheep country that's a country that's bordered by a lot of timber um, and has timber going up quite high on some of those. Uh, And the rams, like if you're looking at what you know to be ram country and you're not finding rams, they're in the trees. That's, you know, and there's a lot of places they're almost impossible to hunt in the trees. Um, But that is where they are. So, but so that's, that's one thing sec- that I, well, 
let me just finish that off. The one thing I noticed about that was that it wasn't that I was not seeing rams. Like that first hunt was 20 days. I think I saw uh, 35 rams. So that's, and, and it's in a higher density area. So I would normally expect to see probably about 50 rams in that area on that hunt um, with that amount of time. But, you know, and, and you're just thinking like, well, where are they? Well, they're below you. They're in the, they're just, they change their habits. Right. And, and with that bad weather, with the really nasty weather, I mean, where do you want to be? Do you want to be up in the Alpine at 6,700 feet or do you want to be tucked in behind a little spruce or something like that? hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. On the lee side of a nice yeah, rock cliff and tucked yeah. underneath some overhang. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's where I'd be. And that was, was something, blown... sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just, uh, on one of the, we got up on this knife ridge on our sheep hunt and like I was just, we were, we were looking at this ridge from the river mm-hmm. and we were, and we were, we were glassing it and then you're glassing all these open spots, but it's like, well, that looks like sheep country. There's gotta be sheep here. You know, someone said there might be sheep here. Let's have a look at it. Mm-hmm. And then we ended up climbing up there and, uh, and once you get on the ridge, like you start to like climb around the ridge and look down and there's like, there's literally caves that these sheep live in. Yeah. And like, like there's just no way you'd ever see these sheep if totally. you were like like if they want if they want to be hunkered down in this sh- tough weather or high winds or rain like whatever they want or snow like they're 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 not gonna, they're they're gonna be tucked away and like yeah yeah laying under a rock with their comforter and their pillow and like absolutely <laughs> <see them. laughs> yeah for sure yeah. but yeah that for so sure. that was kind of one observation there uh, second one. From what I heard, there was a it was a pretty big increase in uh, in like illegal rams being killed this year, um, and there you know that has kind of been a, a rising trend in the last I think three years or so in seven B. Um, so do, when you say illegal rams, is that accidental harvest uh, or or is that straight up poaching? Oh no, accidental harvest. So um, you know it would either be a seven year old ram that doesn't break the nose. Um, or yeah, it would be a seven, six or seven year old Ram that doesn't break the nose, false rings, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, they publish, Bridger publishes a, a, a pretty good PDF on, on all of the harvest data from seven B every year. And, uh, does it usually does a talk at the wild sheep society of BC AGM in March on that. Um, and then at the bottom of it, they publish, you know, how many illegal Rams were killed and, and horn length and, and all that kind of averages and stuff like that. So. Um, this is totally anecdotally, but I did hear there was an uptick in that. Um, and then the other thing is there was probably more really big rams killed this year than any other year I've heard about in recent, you know, especially like 180 inch. I think there was three or 480 inch rams taken that I heard about, which is pretty, I don't know, maybe the nineties would be the last time that would happen or. Wow. Long time ago. I did see a couple of pictures that came across my. Mm-hmm. my phone that from some folks in the community with some impressive rams um i don't actually know what 180 inch ram is can you break down kind of what that means to, yeah yeah to for sure like so um if you're going off of and i'm not big on score as being something that makes it matter um you know i, I think it's i think it's cool and interesting if you can you know take an animal that happens to be uh big as well um but for me certainly for my own personal hunting uh personal mountain hunting i guess i would say because this doesn't apply to me for deer but for personal mountain hunting i would say like maturity age is age is the most important thing um you know keeping a high age class allows those animals to breed and and less of an impact on the population regardless of of score size um and certainly if as a as a guide in an outfit if you have an outfitter that's that wants the most out of their outfit long-term, then they want you to harvest the most mature animals possible, um, regardless of, regardless of score as well. So, um, so that's kind of my first qualifier. And then as far, as far as the actual scoring on a sheep, uh, Boone and Crockett is the most widely used, um, scoring system. And for anyone who doesn't know what it is, they can look it up, but it's basically, you know, back in the day, someone set a standardization of, uh, I think it's it was originally based off of white-tailed deer, and it was supposed to be, uh, you know, with the ideal habitat, like perfect habitat and environment and genetic whatever, you know, this would be the kind of premium specimen, so to say. Um, so for sheep, it is, uh, for thin-horned sheep, Boone and Crockett is 170 inches. 
Um, and so 180 inch Ram is, is truly something that is, uh, is incredibly rare. You know, there would only be a, a handful of them in the book yeah. that would be, that would be of that size. It, it would be kind of like, you know, if you pulled a 220 inch mule deer or something like just cool. So, okay. So, so can you tell me how, how do you measure a 180 inch ram? Like what, what parts of the yeah. horn are you measuring? So you take, um, you're basically, see if my math is right. I was going to say eight measurements, but it's not, you measure the length on both horns. Um, so from the tip to the, to the back of the base, to the, to the front of the base. So you measure from the, the tip of the horn to the front of the base. Um, yep. and then you would take, you would divide that number by four and then at each of those, you know, at each of your four measurements, like let's say it was a 40 inch Ram and you're going to measure every 10 inches. Um, then you would take your, you would take a circumference measurement on each of those, each of those marks, right? Okay. So you're capturing both the length, which is significant. Yeah. And then you're capturing the, the girth yep. of each portion of the, of the Ram and you're dividing it by four. So you, so no, you add, you add it all together. So you'd add that all together on both sorry, sides. Sorry, you're dividing the length yes. of the horn in four parts. Yeah. And you're measuring the circumference of each one of those part, uh, yeah. four parts. Yeah, that's right. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, so awesome. you, okay. you would do that and then you'd add the two together. And then, um, you know, for, for net score for Boone and Crockett, you would divide the difference, um, which is something I think is kind of ridiculous. But well, um, I know now that I'm definitely not shooting anything less than 170 <laughs> gram. Okay. But yeah. now that I know, well, I'll be sure to, yeah. yeah you can, you can <laughs> hunt the rest of your life for that. But, uh, no, I'll just be, I'll be so thrilled the day that I see a ram that is like clearly over the bridge of the nose. Yeah. And, uh, that's, uh, I, I'm super uncomfortable with, uh, uh, so, so in BC, there's, there's two, there's just for education opportunity. There's, there's two ways, like there's two ways to define a legal ram in BC. And, and one is that the, the, the tip of the horn has to grow beyond the bridge of the nose. And that's considered a full curl. And then the other way is to count, um, uh, annuli on, on on the on, on one horn and mm -hmm. it has to have how and it's it's eight annuli correct yeah yes it has to it has to be uh eight uh, it's uh, the phrasing is something like it has to be eight years old as evidenced by true annuli true horn annuli um so false rings are something that do exist and it can be it's it, yeah there's a lot that goes into sheep hunting if you're if you're shooting sheep on age um oh, you know sure. it's it takes a lot of time and it can be very stressful and um but i mean it's something that for anyone out there who's interested in doing it i encourage them to try and study it as much as possible reach out to guides um and and other people like you know bridger mike bridger or biologists there's a lot of or the wild sheep society bc they're great for that kind of stuff um you know and it's you can there's there's a never-ending cycle of education you learn stuff all the time yeah, absolutely. So I, I just to go back to my boy, like I, I'm super uncomfortable with the idea of shooting a ram on annuli alone because mm -hmm. I, you know, some some sheep you can like you're like oh so obvious you can count oh. those annual like one two three four five six seven, I don't see eight, <laughs> but yeah. but uh, you know the it, and then on other rams it'll be the like, ram standing next to it will have you can't even decipher one of its annuli like it's so difficult because it's it's much lighter tone to its. Yep. It's rings and uh, it's very difficult, even though it looks maybe heavier or bigger, like it doesn't give you enough information to make the judgment call. Yeah. Uh, it just it seems to be very, very difficult to do that. And then, as you said, the, um, you know, there's a, there's a very much a pattern in which those annuli develop yes. uh, that represent each year of growth. And then occasionally there can be kind of a, another, another line that, that crosses the circumference of the, of the horn that looks very much like an annuli, but it may represent something totally different. Well, it doesn't necessarily represent a year of age. It actually represents an injury or something that for hard, some reason it yeah. decided to hard winter yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Something weird. So man, is it ever tough? So anyways, like I said, I'm holding out for the one, just, I'm not going to count to 180 points. I'm just looking for the, <laughs> the it's like, I'll keep, keep doing this. I only need to kill one ram in my life. I'll just wait for the one that is like so obviously legal that I don't have to count rings. Yeah. So it's my, it's my strategy. So um, having said that, having said that, I mean, not, not that I, I, I don't think I'm going to change my strategy, but 
know, this is probably year five or six that I've been really dedicated. I, I usually dedicate a, a one trip a year to sheep hunting. Right. And like, I'm really getting more comfortable with when I see a mature mature ram. I'm like, oh, that's those are those are six year old rams. Okay, that's a mature ram. Let's look mm-hmm. at that one. And I'm getting way more comfortable with the characteristics of that mature ram. And I know that over the last few years, I have seen what I I, I, I can assume were were legal rams based on annual eye, mm-hmm. uh, based on my assessment. I'm just not comfortable shooting them. But I'm very much getting more comfortable with identifying those key features, and that's that's been kind of a cool process that's come with experience of, of just seeing so many rams over those five or six years that i've been really dedicating efforts and mm-hmm. so like i feel like now it, it's it's sort of like when you see like a when i see a six-point bull elk now like i remember my first year i had to like yeah i just had to go over it and go over it in the first few years now i look at a six-point elk well, that's this point elk and that was a five point and like it's not yeah. even it's like you just recognize the configuration of the antlers and it's imprinted on you and yeah. all the other features that come with it make it so it doesn't require the same process, right? Definitely. And I think that's I think that's kind of one of the beautiful things about sheep hunting is um, you know, because the legal requirements are so strict, um, and you have to be so selective, you spend more time watching I mean, if you're in good sheep country, you should see some sheep, um, weather pending and all of those kinds of things. But um but I think you you spend so much time more time watching sheep than you would watching other things because you aren't, you know, yeah. I mean, deer hunting, like I said, if I'm blacktail hunting and a spiker walks out, well, there's a good chance that uh, I'm coming home with meat. <laughs> it's not a trophy hunt, nope. but uh, but yeah. So for sheep, I, I mean, that's something that I really love about it is is just getting to watch, um, you know, watch them so much and and really study them. And like you said, you start to re- you start to recognize patterns, and and the more you do it, the more you can you know you can see a ram at fifteen hundred yards away, and and usually kind of recognize mass, um, kind of mass and stuff like that, and get an idea of like, hey, that's not even something we need to look at. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I saw a mule deer this well, a couple of mule deer this year that I was like, you look at fifty mule deer, and then you see one, you're like, okay, I gotta go. See you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're running. The no brainer after it. Yeah, yeah. Like, like yeah. So yeah. I had that a couple times this year, but uh, nice. So that's great. Um <clears throat> okay, so before we leave them, I want to talk about your your hunting season and, and, and chat about that while we got a bit of time. But hey, so like what do you see like I mean, if what if COVID it carries on it and the border what if the border stays closed in the next season what do you anticipate it's gonna look like for the guy outfitting it what are some of the follow what's happening i really don't know you know it's been um it's interesting i was having a a chat with a guy i guide with uh earlier today and just kind of catching up on my the elk hunt i was just on and we could touch on that later but um and and we were talking about that and and just kind of saying like you know i i don't think spring bear season i don't think the borders will be open for spring bear season um, personally, um, certainly with the way things are in the States, I don't think they should be, uh, that's just my personal opinion, but, um, I don't think they will be open. So we're kind of prepping for that. And then, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's been a lot of, it's, it's been interesting kind of in a way to see how COVID has, has affected different industries because I've got some friends, um, that their businesses are just booming. Like they, you know, mm-hmm. they're going a thousand miles an hour and they've never been so busy and it's been great. And they're like, you know, it's, it's, it's great for like financially, as far as like mental health wise, it's not great. Cause I'm just going seven days a week, basically. Uh, the guide outfitter business has not been like that. It's been pretty, um, it's been pretty dire. And I mean, I was quite lucky to get, um, to get the hunts I did in. And, and certainly even for me, I mean, that was basically, um, it was, a, it was a fairly significant financial hit this year basically made half as much money, um, through the guiding season. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, there's a lot of, I have friends who, who guide in the Northwest territories and then have their own outfit in BC and didn't have any work. So you have no, I mean, if that's your whole career and you've been putting 15, 20 years into it, like you can't just pick up something else on a dime. Um, so it's, it's tough. And if we don't have clients for next year, um, I see a lot of outfitters, probably folding um you know there'll be a lot of outfits or a number of outfits probably for sale and um that'll be tough i mean you know it's it's something that obviously we need to take seriously and um but at the same time it's yeah it's tough to see 
tough to see guys like you know really hurting so yeah for sure yeah so i uh, truthfully i have i have no idea like i said i don't think i don't think canadians have the appetite to really spend uh much money for for hunting trips and stuff like that so uh yeah yeah, I kind of feel like it's a dumb question to even say. Like, you, you know, everybody's talking about pivoting. Like, oh, we, like this is your business. We got to pivot with COVID. And I'm like, mm-hmm. how, how does the guide outfitting you know industry pivot to something that is, you know, yeah. feasible given the, you know, the cost that go into providing those experiences? Like, you know, this just is not enough money, and you know, mm-hmm. there's not going to be eco tourists who, who want to fly into those remote areas to wander around and look at sheep just for fun. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and I mean certainly the the way that the stone sheep hunts are priced, like there's a that's a lot of profit. That is an absolute lot of profit in there because if we can run a, you know, if we can run a mountain goat hunt for 15,000 US, that's basically the it costs the same amount to run that as it does to run a sheep hunt. You're not really making profit on the goat hunt, but um mm-hmm. yeah, so I mean, I don't know. I I truly I I I have no idea what's going to happen and it's a pretty big yeah, for a lot of us it's kind of like uh what are we going to do? So we'll see. Well, well, you're a talented guy and you're doing lots of other work. So you're, you're probably a little bit insulated from, from some of this stuff, but yeah, I sure, I sure feel badly for the families and stuff that are, that, you know, this is what they've done for yeah so, so many years and, and uh, they're going to be hurting, but I, I think it's kind of a common theme across the, across Canada right now. Yeah. A lot of people hurting. So for sure. Hopefully this, uh, we get through this quick, but it's uh, something I've been thinking about a lot. Like, uh, well, let's let's talk about let's let's, let's pivot over this pivot over to <laughs> talking about uh, our hunting seasons and and uh, and I was just on that note, just thinking about the hardships that everybody is going through, and like I feel really fortunate. I've been thinking about this a lot lately about how fortunate that you know, given the shit that people are going through in terms of losing their jobs, their careers, their businesses, and the crazy mm-hmm. guide outfitters, and then so many people too that are like um, like. You know, people who rely on like you know arts and culture to to get like the mentally, mentally, yeah, yep. like the mental like health of connecting with your family and friends over dinner or like mm-hmm. going out to a show or going to an art gallery or gosh forbid like if you're an artist and like you play music that then not only pays the bills but then nourishes your soul because you're with your community like mm-hmm. like all of this stuff is like people are cut off from it mm-hmm. as a result of COVID. And it's like, and I, and, and, and the thought really is based on like how fortunate like you and I are. Oh, and, and totally like the things that we need to do with like, Oh, you got to go and hang out. Like you guys, it was funny. Cause we were talking about doing this over dinner. This, this, they were like, Oh, come for dinner, you know, bring, bring your partner and we'll have dinner and hang out. And then like the COVID reality check comes across. Like, oh yeah, that's right. Like we kind of go to the bubble thing and it's yeah. not really cool. If we just like hang out for dinner, but both of us have been living so exclude, like I'm so outside of this reality that's COVID. Totally. All the, like, I mean, I was, real- yeah, I was, I was super, super fortunate. And I, you know, in some ways felt a bit guilty because, uh, you know, while I was for two and a half months up north in the mountains, literally not once did I ever have to think about COVID, you know, my, and, and our mentality on it was like, look, our clients are coming in for 14 days. Um, you know, we're going to be, we're not going to be like close contact. We're not indoors, indoors. I mean, we're not even sharing sleeping quarters and our yeah. kitchen's outdoors, but you're just kind of, you know, it was just something I literally never had to think of. Didn't have to think about anything like that. And that was sort of a tough transition coming back to, um, just from the standpoint of like, you know, you would, I'd leave the house and forget to take a mask with me. Something, yeah. something like that and like go to be like, oh, I was going to go to the grocery store. I guess I'm going home first. That kind of thing, yeah. right? So, um, yeah, but but for me, I mean, mental health wise, like, yeah, I mean, just so fortunate to be able to spend like two months, you know, especially with everything going on, um, you know, socially and politically, particularly in the States. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, I honestly feel a bit guilty escaping it, but at the same time, um it was it was a breath of fresh air. We were very very fortunate because, like you said, there's a lot of other people that that don't have a way out of that, right? No, no. So I think yeah. I mean, that that, that was my thought. It's like wow, as I do a sort of round table of checking in with my buddies who are like so privileged to be mm, oh, out doing totally. what they would normally do. Like oh, this yeah. is my hunt. I, like I've been I was fishing all all season and now I'm hunting and 
my community of people who, you know, I stay connected with are all doing the same thing and we're all kind of doing okay and we're able to see each other because we're outside. And, mm-hmm. like, but yeah, that's not the reality. So, I mean, the, the one thing I'm going to like really start talking or try to like be like, remember is like, you know, just make sure you check in with those people. Like, cause this mm-hmm. is going to get a lot harder as we move inside. Totally. But, I mean, I've get... all my family's back or most of my family's back East. Right. So okay. like in that case, I haven't seen my, uh, my parents or my two brothers since December, um, won't until who knows when, uh, yeah. which is, which is tough, but I mean, it's all, I've, I've been out here for long enough that I'm kind of used to not seeing them for a while. Um, but yeah, and, and and it's totally, um, that's, that's been a pretty big eye opener for me because my two siblings and then, uh, Nicole's sister and her partner live, they all live downtown Toronto. Um, mm-hmm. and that's a totally different place than Vancouver as far as how COVID's been. Like they just yeah. don't, they don't have the green space. They don't have the, you know, they don't have the North shore mountains. They don't have Squamish. They don't have, they don't have any of that. They don't have the ability to pop on a boat and go fishing or, or even just go to parks, right? The amount of parks that Vancouver has is absolutely incredible. You know, for for a major city, like it's we're so fortunate. So yeah, totally. Like yeah, we were talking about well, I was talking to you about I invited you to come on the boat with us to go uh yeah, go pick mushrooms on, on the island there, just uh, you know, off Horseshoe Bay and like maybe shoot a black tail. That's like a Sunday afternoon for us in COVID, right? Yeah. Like, you know, it's just, just, anyway, we're lucky anyway. Okay. So let's, 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 let's wrap, let's move towards wrapping up here. But I, um, I want, I want to get an update on your personal hunting season. Uh, what do you, okay. So have you, have you had any, well, actually did, did you I, get I, a chance to hunt when you're up North? No. So I actually turned down, I had the opportunity to go stone sheep hunting for myself. Um, and I turned that down to guide, a, guide the last client. Yeah. And how are you feeling about that decision right at this moment? Fantastic, actually. <laughs> um, completely, you know, capitalist, selfishly, uh, it was a good opportunity to make a bunch of money. Um, so there was that. And then also, you know, I think there's an element of stone sheep hunting. Um, I, th- I think there's an element of the drive behind stone sheep hunting is the fact that it's not easy and it takes a long time. And I mean, you're one of the most competent hunters I know. And like you said, you've been on, I don't know how many, five, six sheep trips, right. And, and it hasn't Holy come shit. together yet. So, um, not even close, like not even close. Like yeah. that's the reality. Yeah, like no, I've never, it's, it's tough. I've never had a bullet in my gun on a goddamn sheep hunt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think I think an, a big element of the drive behind stone sheep hunting is, um, you know, is is the can I actually make this happen? Like, can I do this? Right? I mean, it's the country and it's everything else. Like, it is so gorgeous up there when it's not absolutely miserable weather. Um, even when it is, it's it's a beautiful place to be, and and that's worth the trip in and of itself. But I think what what a big driver too is is that kind of like well, especially for the first sheep, it's like, can I do it? Right. Can I actually get this done? And for me, like that part's gone because, you know, it's kind of like, well, if I can get a not that, you know, not that mobile or not that agile mobile, but not that nimble, like 60 year old guy onto a sheep, I can definitely do it for myself. Um, So 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 this, how about this? So how about this? So so could you start, could you start fresh? Like say, like, cause you got the benefit of course of of being in a territory where there's the shared knowledge of the guides Mm -hmm. and, and your own experience in that area, like, um, what about going to a different territory where you where you're starting from square one, almost as a resident hunter, having to research it mm-hmm. without the benefit of being part of the guide community, and and starting and, and and starting that process from there. Well, it's yeah, I mean, it's different. I mean, knowing what I know now, if you drop me off in an area, it just depends. Like, if I if I had a good idea of where I should be. Like if I had a good like, hey, you know, I know that this kind of general, this range, this general area has rams. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think I could do it, but it's it's stone sheep hunting. I mean, you know, we have horses and we have all the intel of years and stuff and we're not 100% success. We're not even 100% opportunity. So, um, you know, there is the element of that. But, but the part of like, you know, can I do this? I know I can do it, right? And so for me... Um, yeah, for me, it was, it was a, a huge motivation was just making more money um, because it was already a pretty lean, you know, it was a leaner year than most for yeah. me. Uh, and then, you know, I, th- I think it was also the way that it panned out. We ended up getting a, a really nice ram, like a really awesome ram. 
uh, and it was on the second day of the hunt. So it, it was, we had beautiful weather. This was right at the start of October. Um, uh, beautiful weather, got a sheep on the second day. Um, really great client, super appreciative, uh, guy from Alberta. And he had, and a fairly, fairly blue collarish guy. He was a welder from Alberta. He actually told me, he's like, I be honest, dude, I took out a line of credit for this hunt. Like I just knew there was <laughs> never going to be another time when I would see a stone sheep hunt at this price. And I said to the wife, like, I got to do this, you know? And so anyways, but, uh, you know, I, I think what the pressure, yeah, yeah. 56, the U S pressure versus 30,000 Canadian pressure sounds about the same when the guy's got to put on a line of credit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Um, but anyways, uh, yeah. And and I think at the end of the day, that meant so much more to him than it would have to me. Not that it wouldn't have meant something to me, not that I would have been flipping about it. Uh, I just don't imagine that it, that it could have been the same for me as it would have been for him because he actually came uh you know he was there on the hunt like from the 16th of august till whatever in september he was he did a 20-day sheep hunt they actually had worse weather where he was in the area than where i was he was maybe 60 kilometers as the crow flies um they had worse weather they never saw any rams whatsoever um and so he he had phoned the outfitter up later on and said like hey you know Basically, is there any chance you have a free guide later on? I'd love to come back. I'll pay a, you know, trophy fee or I'll put like whatever. We can figure something out here. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, you know, in in that case, like such a great guy. And, and I was, uh, you know, yeah, just, and frankly, like I don't need a taxidermy bill ever, let, let alone this year. <laughs> like... Yeah, really. So... Fair enough. I can do your amount, man. I gotta, I gotta... Yeah. I got a pot and a, and a and an outdoor burner you can borrow and nice, you can nice. boil up your head. Yeah. yeah, cool. Okay, hey, so get me up to see. So what have you? So you you got back sometime. You got out of the bush sometime mid October. Um, yeah, early October. Doing, cool. So what have you been doing for yourself for your hunt? I haven't really hunted much for myself. So I actually just came back from a ten um, day Roosevelt elk hunt up one of the inlets, like on the kind of south coast, Sunshine Coast area. Um, and uh, a good friend of mine, Tosh. Uh, Tashun- so hold on, before you get too far, so you did this hunt or a similar hunt, same uh, hunt last year. Yep, same okay, hunt. Okay, same hunt. So, yep. la- so last year, and you guys did a nice job with this. You guys featured it in uh, in there's a Journal Mountain Hunting yeah, film we, series. We did a film series, and and that was part of it. Um, yeah, and uh, so back to the same area. And Tash, who actually filmed, he's from uh, of Filter Studios. It's his company. He filmed our hunt last year. He drew the tag for this year. Um, That's awesome. So we spent ten days uh, up up an inlet on the coast, and uh, it's just it's so beautiful there. Like we had no success. We did not see elk. We barely even found sign that I would say is really fresh. You know, we we did those guys found uh, some stuff that was. Uh, probably from that morning they'd found it that afternoon so day like that day sign but apart from that it was you know it's just tough like they i think they stopped logging there in the late 80s um it's all pretty grown up and you know we're just finding the odd lone bull track and you know you're looking for a a bull cruising and a whole ton of just steep thick timber and all that yeah um but you know the flip side of that for me is i did get the opportunity to do a little bit of blacktail hunting on that um i saw two does uh which is you know for me for blacktail hunting that's pretty cool <laughs> and uh and i did a bunch <laughs> of mushroom picking which is a new thing for me and i was joking you know i might give up this guiding thing i don't have to walk around with a heavy backpack <laughs> well it's progressively heavier if you have a successful mushroom hunt okay well i'm not on your level with that you know i'm, <laughs> I'm talking about carrying around you know ziploc bags or a dry bag and but anyways, yeah. So I had a blast. That's really I haven't I haven't really got much into personal hunting for myself yet. Um, but I had an absolute blast. I mean, it's it's a beautiful place, and we're just so fortunate to be able to hunt everywhere we hunt here. It's it is yeah. incredible. The biodiversity in BC is absolutely mind blowing, especially from coming from southern Ontario, where it's you know rolling cornfields and hardwoods, which is yeah. also beautiful in its own right. Um, yeah. but to be able to come from Northern BC, the Northern Rockies, and then, uh, next week I'll be going, uh, deer hunting in the kind of Fraser Canyon area. Um, and yeah, just to have those opportunities, it's, you know, I'm kind of, I, I would like to, I would like to have some, I would like to get a deer for myself this year. I, we, we eat mostly wild game. I don't buy red meat, uh, ever. And, uh, 
Yeah, but I have, I've got a bunch of bear in the freezer too. So if I don't, it's nice. just happy so to be got, out you, there. You got a deer hunt planned? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might have a few. I might actually <laughs> try and just hunt until December. We'll see. I, I, I highly recommend that. Yeah, I, I had a call. I had a phone call with my dad earlier today, and he's asking me about my plans. I'm like, yeah, I think I'm gonna do this, and then I might be like co-guiding a hunt or whatever, and then for deer and then i'll probably do a deer camp with some buddies in early december for whitetail and he's like and nicole is good with all of this I'm like yeah <laughs> yeah she actually is <laughs> Not that good. Yeah. awesome so it's, a, it's a good relationship yeah it's great yeah yeah i'm very fortunate oh that's fun well i i hope that you uh hope you connect later in this season um this has been fun to hang out with you and and, and check in on um uh, on just the guiding season, it's kind of a, I, I am very curious as to what's going to happen here next year with with the guide industry, and, and mm-hmm. uh, I really feel for 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 you folks, and and um, yeah, I, I I do hope that there's some help coming from the government, or maybe things change here with mm-hmm. uh, with COVID and how things go, but uh, yeah, um, but yeah, this has been fun, and and um, yeah, we should probably talk a little bit offline here after this call. We could talk about some hunting spots. I got a couple of ideas for you. For I think I know where you're going on your next trip. So I'll, let's let's take advantage of this Zoom call and I'll I'll show you a couple spots there. Definitely, I'd appreciate that. And uh, anyways, I, I just so anyways, Nolan, uh, if people want to find you, how do they find you on on social media? Uh, you can find I I don't actually post a whole ton on social media, but my Instagram is at nmo. Um. And then, you know, for any journal of mountain hunting stuff, it's pretty self-explanatory. It's the journal of mountain hunting. But, uh, yeah, I, I like to not, I, I like to keep it low-key these days. It's awesome. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, thanks, Nolan. I, I appreciate it. I was a little bit late joining you here. There was lots going on, and uh, I really appreciate waiting around for me to jump in on the call. And we've been hanging out here for an hour. So let, let's wrap up and move on to having a beer and, and talking some hunting spots and so thanks so much. And, uh, Hey, so, so folks, um, Hey, so thanks so much for hanging out with, with Nolan and I, um, yeah, we, we're, uh, probably the coolest stuff that we've got going on. We're doing some webinars and such to sort of stay connected with the community. So if you haven't checked out that, check it out. Otherwise just follow us on Instagram. Um, we're mid hunting season, so I still got a few trips planned. So if you haven't been following along, check us out. Um, and yeah, and, and for sure we were talking a little bit about mental health and we're talking about, uh, you know, those of us who aren't able to go out and do the things we need to do to stay mentally well. So I just want to encourage you to reach out to somebody in your community that might be feeling isolated, that might be suffering from the onset of the darkness of winter, and uh, make sure you make their life a little better and, and bring some joy to their life. And uh, a phone call will do that, or even one of these Zoom calls can help a lot to those folks who are feeling isolated. So make sure you do that and uh, and stay connected. Okay. Anyways, take care, everybody, and um, we'll uh, we'll be doing this again here pretty quick. So all the best. Thank you.